Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. You know, a few years ago, I made a resolution to carry less stuff in fewer bags. Oh, and how did that work out for you? I have to say, I think as of last year, I have finally you like, fulfilled it. I have fulfilled it after That's many good. years of working on it. That's good. Because I just now have a rule that I will only carry one bag. And that's a smart rule. And that's that. Everything's got to fit in one bag. One bag to roll them all. I'm also... <laughs> one bag to bind them. I'm also so... I used to be, and I'm still kind of not great at this, which is the, oh, I don't know if I'm going to need that thing, so I'll take it with me. Oh. I have been very good as of late to go like, no, I'm going to bring exactly what I need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, for this year, my resolution, I guess, is just to um, cook more. Yeah, that's a good one. I think for me... Like a minor one, which is important, is to read a little bit more because I love to read. It's just like finding the time not to. Like over break, I read two books and I didn't turn the TV on at all. And I actually was totally fine. And there's like a million shows that I would love to catch up on, but I'd rather invest the time in reading. And I think I want to do more work on my house this year as like something that I'd like to be able to just like put a lot of projects to bed and like call it quits there you know, as far as like personal stuff goes. And of course, to do some more traveling. I mean, we have some trips in the works right now. Um, yes, I'm very excited about those. I think I am like got the itch now after doing Shenandoah in the fall to like get out there again and maybe even see Shenandoah again, like sometime in the spring or summer or fall. Um, yeah. Because it was real pretty and it was there's real lots pretty to see. And, real easy. and it's close. Yeah. Welcome to Trail Mix, my gaze at the national parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. <laughs> and I'm Mike. Trail Mixes um, are shorter episodes that take place between our long format episodes. It's an opportunity for us to talk about parts of our trips to the national parks that maybe didn't make it into our, our full length episodes. Um, it's also a chance for us to talk about national monuments, um, national historic sites, and any other things that maybe come up in the national parks world throughout the time that we are 
podcasting. And this is part three of Gaze at the National Mall. Previously, in the first two segments of this trail mix, we covered many different monuments in the National Mall. And by covered, we mean that we are bringing you the architectural and design history of each one of the national monuments or the memorials in the National Mall. This trail mix isn't about who Abraham Lincoln was. It's about why the Abraham Lincoln Memorial is designed the way it is. Correct. Yeah. So that's actually a great starting point. So the Lincoln Memorial is one that is incredibly hard to miss. It is modeled after the Pantheon of ancient Greece. Did you say Pantheon? The or Pantheon. Is it Parthenon? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. It's the Parthenon. Pantheon the Pantheon is, is in, in Rome. Rome. The Pantheon is what the Jefferson Memorial was modeled after. Thank you for catching me, the art history major over here. You are the art history major. <laughs> um, so I'm it, the theater major who just remembered that. Toss, yeah, toss, toss. toss. Um, so it's modeled after the Parthenon, which is in the Acropolis in Athens, Greece. It was designed by Henry Bacon. It stands 190 feet long, 119 feet wide, and almost 100 feet high. There are 36 fluted Doric columns that basically make up the colonnade that surrounds the memorial. Those each stand for one of each of the states that was in the Union at the time of Lincoln's death. Um, There are two columns in the Antis at the entrance behind the colonnade. There is a north and south chamber that's contained within the monument itself that has different inscriptions from Lincoln's second inaugural address and his Gettysburg address. And in between those two chambers is the chamber that houses the sculpture of Abraham Lincoln. The statue itself was carved in four years by the Pissarilli brothers under the supervision of the sculptor Daniel Chester French. It's 19 feet high and it weighs 175 tons. It was originally only planned to actually be 10 feet high, but after they started to see the plan of the whole memorial come together, they didn't want Lincoln's statue to be dwarfed by the chamber itself. So that added some major expansion to his figure. The plan itself to create the monument was first proposed in 1867, shortly after his death. And that design originally called for um, six equestrians and 31 pedestrian statues in colossal size with a 12-foot statue of Lincoln in the center. That was never started due to lack of funds. What happened was that Congress approved the bill to construct the current memorial as it stands in 1910, and construction began in 1914. The memorial was opened in 1922. Aside from being, you know, a major gathering place for people and for people to come and visit and and really take in the monument itself. It's been the site of a lot of large gatherings and protests. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech was delivered to the crowd by the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. So it does have a lot of cultural significance to it. Henry Bacon, the sculptor, really wanted to utilize Greek architecture as the jumping off point for the memorial because he thought, how better to remember Lincoln than by someone who struggled to defend democracy than a model that was basically attributed after the birthplace of democracy in Greece. He used a variety of stones in the construction of the memorial. The granite at the terrace level came from Massachusetts. The marble of the upper facade came from Colorado. And the pink marble of the chamber floor came from Tennessee. 
The artist Daniel Chester French, um, who is responsible for the 19-foot-tall statue of Abraham Lincoln, was someone that had an incredible attention to detail. He really was trying to create a view of Lincoln during the midst of the war, and he reviewed photographs, read eyewitness descriptions, and he studied the um, Leonard Volk's 1860 casting of Lincoln's hands, and then sculpted several models until he rendered a perfect final project. Other artists that were involved in the creation of the monument um, were Jules Guerin, um, and he was the artist hired by Henry Bacon, the architect, to create watercolor illustrations for this proposed memorial. As the memorial emerged, Bacon selected Guerin to decorate the Lincoln Memorial interior. So if you're ever at the memorial in the two chambers off of the main chamber, where you can see Lincoln's second inaugural address and also his Gettysburg address, there are two 60-foot by 12-feet high murals that visually symbolize the resounding principles of Abraham Lincoln. They're allegorical, and they are both known under two different titles, Emancipation and Unity. Emancipation is above the Gettysburg address. The central panel shows the angel of truth releasing slaves from the shackles of bondage. In unity above the second inaugural address on the north wall, it features the angel of truth joining the hands of two figures representing the north and south. So there's a lot of deep-seated symbolism within the monument and memorial itself and architectural history there, um, which is very clearly um, apparent. Tell us about the Signers of the Declaration of Independence Memorial, Dusty, or Monument. This information about this memorial is coming to you today from mps.gov and also harvard.edu. Okay, so it's the memorial, and it is the memorial to the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. It is located in Constitution Gardens, which is part of the National Mall. Constitution Gardens was created literally because they felt that the National Mall at the time was a little too formal looking. So okay. they wanted to soften it a little bit with some gardens. There was this small island inside of the lake there at Constitution Gardens. They decided to dedicate that island specifically to the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. In 1978, Congress passed an act to authorize the Secretary of the Interior to memorialize the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence in Constitution Gardens on that little tiny island. Mm -hmm. That little baby island. Little baby island. The architect was Joseph Brown. Okay. In Constitution Gardens, there's this tiny wooden bridge. You can cross the wooden bridge onto the little baby island. And then to the left and right are stones that are organized and they slope upward. Each set of stones is together based on the state or colony that those people came from. Inside of each one of those stones is their signature, like it was directly lifted from the Declaration of Independence, and the signature is embossed in gold. Below it, it has their name printed. It also has their occupation and the city where they are from. It's a pretty small memorial. It's, um, it's one of the smallest memorials in the National Mall. Yeah. I was actually surprised that there wasn't a little bit more pomp and circumstance for it because it really is something that's very easy to miss. Whereas I feel like most of the other memorials, like if you're walking by them, there's like no way to like not well, assume that there's something there. Well, we almost missed this yeah. one. We almost walked right by it and we were like, oh, we don't see it. And then it was like, oh, it's over there. Because essentially, this entire memorial is in stones that are inside the ground. 
Right. It's a low kind of like relief out of the ground. And plus the fact that the bridge is there and there's actually some water plants like before the islands mm-hmm. too. It would make it really, really easy to miss it if you weren't looking for it. Now, Constitution Gardens is in a process of renovation. There have been, over the past few years, plans um, to renovate Constitution Gardens. They've just finished phase one. As part of this, they have moved the Lock Keeper's house, which is right there in Constitution Gardens. They've actually moved the entire structure 30 feet to one side so that it is a little easier to access. Okay. And that also gives them opportunity to like um, make room for other things they're doing. Another thing they're doing as part of this renovation is actually like creating like an like an irrigation waterway system out of that lake okay. and um, into the basin. Oh, okay. The so, basin? The tidal basin so that um, they can like flush out that lake water every so often. Okay. So, um, and there's also like plans to like add some more structure to that area, but that hasn't happened quite yet. Gotcha. So, Mike, tell us about the Washington Monument. Right. How can you miss? Our most phallic national (laughs) monument. (laughs) Right. How can you miss the Washington Monument? Well, the Washington Monument was just like the Jefferson Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial were modeled after architecture from the ancient past. The same is true for the Washington Monument, which was modeled after an obelisk or an obelisk, depending on how you say it, which originated in ancient Egypt. The Washington Monument was designed by Robert Mills, but it was eventually completed by Thomas Casey and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, It was completed in two phases. So the original construction was started privately from 1848 to 1854, and then it was finished publicly through funds from Congress from 1876 to 1884. When it was completed, it was the tallest building in the world at 555 feet and five and one eighths inch. Originally, the plan was to have it go a full 600 feet, but the architect who was completing the sculpture or completing the structure really like the idea of the height of the monument being 10 times its base. So it's 55 feet at the base on all sides. And I feel like there's some Masonic stuff going on there. Oh, too. I'm sure I'm there sure. probably is. Yes. Because there is a little bit of Masonic history to the monument and obviously to George Washington as well. In 1833, the Washington National Monument Society was a private organization. It was formed to fund and build the monument for the first president that would be unparalleled in the world. The society solicited for donations and designs for a decade, settling on the design by Robert Mills in 1845. His original design called for a 600-foot obelisk um, ringed by 30 100 foot columns. Those columns were obviously eventually scrapped to have a much cleaner look at the just the obelisk itself. And the cornerstone of the construction was laid in 1848 on July the 4th. There are about 20,000 people in attendance. And some people that were there included current President James K. Polk, um, Mrs. James Madison, so Dolly Madison, um, Mrs. Alexander Hamilton, George Washington Park Custis, and the future president's James Buchanan, Lincoln, and Johnson, which is interesting that they were there. Oh, yeah. And her name was Eliza Hamilton. Eliza Hamilton. Eliza. Eliza. Hamilton. (laughs) Thank you. By 1854, the monument had reached a height of 156 feet, but a turn of events had stalled the construction. There was a new group that had aligned itself with the Know Nothing Party, which was, I guess, a party similar to what we would 
consider like the Tea Party, like a, a fringe party of a larger party group, like Republicans or Democrats. And they basically won the elections to be on the board. And they essentially alienated donors and drove the society into bankruptcy in 1854. So without any funding, the monument could not be in any way, shape, or form completed. Eventually, what happens through a joint resolution passed in Congress on July 5th, 1876, they assume the duty of funding and building the Washington Monument. You can actually see that the stone changes color several times. That's because there were different phases of construction. Yeah, I noticed that. Mm-hmm. When, yeah. There's actually three different types of stone. That was actually a question I had, and I was going to ask uh-huh. you why. So the quarry near Baltimore, where they had used the original stone um, to start the construction, was no longer available after so many years of Obviously. Obviously. I mean, they do that with house renovations, too. Right. Like, if, like, the outside of your house is made of stone and, like, you did a one wall that's not. Right. It's like, well, you could, but they're going to be different colors. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, basically, they had to uh, seek another suitable match. So, they turned to a quarry in Massachusetts. Um, however, problems quickly emerged with the quality and color of that stone and the irregularity of deliveries. Um, and so you're able to actually see there's a lot of different discoloration in that stone there. Um, and then eventually they turned to a third quarry, which was also near Baltimore, um, which they got the rest of the stone to kind of complete everything that they needed to. Structure itself was 470 feet above the ground. And then the pyramidal cap had to be added, which was 300 tons that had to go on top that was hoisted up. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. 300 tons? 300 tons. That's heavy. Yes. On December the 6th, 1884, that was hoisted into place. And on top of that, once it was complete, they added an aluminum cap, which noted the names and dates in the monument's construction. And also they inscribed the words facing the rising sun. The words inscribed are Laos Deo, which translates into praise be to God, which is on the top of the monument. Separation of church and state. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And the monument was dedicated on February 21st, 1885, one day before George Washington's birthday that year, which happened to be on a Sunday, which is, I guess, why they didn't do it on his actual birthday. Because of the separation of church and state. Right, because of the separation of church and state. Some other interesting facts, the Masons and the Pope were involved in the monument in some way. Um, So the Freemasons were involved in the cornerstone ceremony. Shocking. We also have the Pope the society that started the construction had asked for ceremonial stones to be a part of the construction process. And Pope Pius IX donated a memorial stone of marble to actually be a part of that. The monument itself is an engineering marvel. It's the tallest freestanding masonry structure. The monument's marble blocks are held together by just gravity and friction and no mortar was used in the process, which I thought was very, very interesting. And we also know too that there was an earthquake on the East Coast in 2011 that caused the Washington Monument to basically close because there was considerable damage that needed to be repaired. So the monument has had a long and varied history. It is one of the things that you cannot miss if you're in Washington, D.C., because it is pretty much visible from everywhere. It's the tallest structure, I I would believe, on the skyline of the city. So it is something that if you're walking the mall, you're bound to see it. And that completes our architectural and design tour of the National Mall. Now let's end this with the game. (laughs) 
All right, Dusty. So we're going to harken back to our first episode of Gaze at the National Mall. And I'm going to ask you to name that orator. Okay. So I'm going to give you some quotes. I'll give you uh, five quotes by three different orators. Mm -hmm. The orators are either Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, or your boyfriend, Benjamin Franklin. Great. Okay. So I'm going to ask you. You say my boyfriend, why? Because you love Benjamin Franklin. I love Benjamin Franklin. And also. And because you have a back tattoo that stretches your whole back <laughs> of no. Ben Franklin with this key. I, he and I share a birthday. That's right, you do. Mm-hmm. You're and old as you, Methuselah. <laughs> and do you share a birthday with? I think James Dean, actually. Oh, okay. I think so. That's right. something to look into after this. Mm-hmm. Great. So, okay. Name that orator. America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter or lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. Benjamin Franklin. Incorrect. That's Abraham Lincoln. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. Okay. That makes sense that he said that. Yeah. 99% of failures come from people who make excuses. Benjamin Franklin. Incorrect. No. George Washington. Uh, (laughs) Damn. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh, that is absolutely a like worker be George Washington mm-hmm. quote though. Okay, great. Labor to keep alive in your breasts that little spark of celestial fire called conscious. Abraham Lincoln. No, it's that, George Washington. That's George Washington. Damn. Okay. All right. I know. These are I'm they're tough, but, but they're tough, but they're good. But I they like are they're game. great quotes. Um three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. That sounds like Ben Franklin. That's Ben Franklin. There okay, you go. Great, great. Um, and Back then on track. also, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. That is Ben Franklin. There you go. Look at that. And you were able to name that order. Name that order. Great. And I was able to. <laughs> I just said Ben Franklin the whole time. Yeah, ben, Franklin, <laughs> ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. Yep. Just living up to that back tattoo. Exactly. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow us on Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And for more information about the National Mall and all the national parks spoken about on this podcast, visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website is by Michael Ryan. All original music is by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while visiting the National Mall, we were on the traditional lands of the Nacochtank or Anacostan and Piscataway people. Stay tuned to our next episode of Trail Mix, all about National Park updates for 2020.